Um, tonight, um, my hope, I don't have a super theological conversation to have with you. Um, my hope is to inspire us, to encourage us, to look more like children. God has been doing something in our community on this. That's why we were just worshiping and singing all about children and all this stuff. It's like there's something happening right now in our community. And God is reforming our hearts to look more like little, desperate, dependent children. No matter how old, no matter how long we've been with God, to become desperate again. And I believe the Lord is doing something unprecedented right now throughout the earth and in our nation. He's pouring out his spirit. He's establishing his kingdom. And in the midst of all of this, there's a devil. And he's doing everything he can to try to get us to miss it. To distract us. To deceive us. And one of the primary things I see the devil doing right now in the body of Christ. Is he's trying to deconstruct our childlike humility. Because Satan knows he can't stand against the kingdom of God. He knows he can't do anything. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to rob us of our access to the kingdom. The Bible says this in Luke 18. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What does this tell me? There's something about childlike humility that gives us access to the things of the kingdom. So if I'm the devil, I'm like, man. I got no chance against the kingdom, so I'm going to try to do things that rob them and keep them from getting into the kingdom. And that's what it is, is childlike humility. So the devil is trying to deconstruct and mess up our childlike humility. But in this house, we are waging war against that. In this house, we are going to be childlike, wide-eyed, mystified kids. Like, oh, Lord, we need you. We're desperate for you. You're everything, God. We want the kingdom. We need the kingdom. We need the kingdom of God. And so if this is true... Man, that the, the, the inheritance of a child is the kingdom. But, but first, we must know that we are children. I, I don't know where everyone has come from. I don't, I don't know. This is the biggest we've ever had in this room. So I, this is amazing. We're so excited for what God's doing right now. But I have no idea what you came in here with. And I just want us to get all on the same page before I go into anything about the kingdom of God, of what it means to actually be a child, that you are a child of God. You, you maybe came in here and you're, you might not even know who Jesus is. Give me a chance right now to represent Jesus to you. You maybe even, you're looking at these guys worship. You're like, what the heck? They are crazy, man. Why, why are they doing this? Why, how could they look like that and worship like that? Can I tell you, there's only one man that can move us like that. There's only one man that can move a room like this. It's Jesus. He is who he says he is. And we have a generation that has been so confused around this idea of identity. They're, they're trying to find who they are in all the wrong places. We've seen many search for purpose, fulfillment, worth, and job titles, popularity, image, relationships, money, accomplishment, sexual orientations, etc. And ultimately at the root of all of this is a search for identity. Who am I? Is integrated inside of every single human being. And the truth is outside of the identity, child of God, we will spend years searching for the answer to that question and never finding it. We think, man, if I, if I get this job, if I just make this amount of money, 
If I get that house, if I identify as this, if I get this amount of followers, if I become friends with this person, if I start dating this person, if I just look a little bit more like this, then I'll feel satisfied, purposeful and worthy. And that might feel good at moments. There there totally are moments where those things feel good. But ultimately, it will lead us down this constant spiral of being burnt out, disappointed, condemned, and shameful. Because we were working so hard to find vision, purpose, value, meaning, and things that will always fail. And so I was thinking about this. Just this idea of being my identity being in a child of God. And I was like, God, I just said a lot of bold things. I was like, I, I, and I believe wholeheartedly that everything I just said is true. But I said, God, I, I believe you. I don't even need this to be true. But God, if this is true, I just wonder if scientifically we can see some of the fruit of this as well. I wonder if that, if I look at some stats, if it will prove to be what I just said is true. And so I started studying a, different, a couple of different things um, the other day. I said, God, if this were true, that people were constantly trying to find their identity in jobs, and I would probably see that statistically proven. And so I did some studies, and I was looking at what happens and what is the rate of switching jobs in our lives. And I found this, that the average person holds 12 jobs between the age 18 and 54, which is around 30 years, around 12 times. That means they're switching jobs around once every three years. Going from job to job to job, trying to find who they are and never finding. To me, this just screams, who am I? I looked at professional athletes. I was like, okay, athletes who have everything, they they got lots of money, they got lots of clout, they got lots of all this stuff. Would there be, there's got to be some form of statistical proof that that something is dissatisfying about that, if this is true. I did some study I found from an article that 35% of elite athletes suffer from disordered eating, burnout, depression, or anxiety. And this is all while doing exercise, one of the most helpful coping mechanisms of mental health. So God, if this is true, I bet those people who find their identity in their body and in their appearance, I bet that they actually aren't that happy. But the actors and Hollywood people, I wonder, there's no way they're actually that happy if this is true. Dr. Garth Fisher, a Hollywood plastic surgeon, said that 70% of Hollywood stars have had plastic surgery, exposing insecurity and dissatisfaction. I said, God, if this is true, there's no way sexual orientation can fix it. I found that data, data shows, this is from PubMed, found that 82% of transgender individuals have considered killing themselves. I'm sobered right now. I don't say that for hype. My heart breaks to read every single one of those statistics. But I'm longing to see it like, oh, man, if you would just see your identity, it's not any of those things. It's in being a child of God. You are not a slave. You are a son. You are a daughter of the king. That's the burden of my heart. That's what I'm crying out when I'm reading these statistics is, please, Gen Z, generation, our nation, would you see who you really are? Would you see who you really are? Because you might wonder, maybe that's you and you're like, man, I struggle with all those things. That's a little bit of me. I'm finding identity in all these things. Why, why is it failing? You were never designed like that. It's like, it's like using a fork to eat soup. It's like it'll never work. It'll never work trying to find purpose and value in anything other than being a child of God. And I'm not saying that those things are bad or that it's, 
that it's not okay to have things like sports and different things that help shape who you are. But what I am saying is that if they don't flow from sonship, you are always going to end up dissatisfied every single time. And so I just want us all, whether this is your first time understanding this concept or you've heard this a million times, we all are just going to get stoked about this revelation that we are sons of God. I'm going to read the Bible. Whew, the Bible's got some good scriptures on this, y'all. Let's go. I'm just going to read. I'm just going to read one right now because I know I'm going to go a little bit long. So I got I to gotta blaze through things here. So Galatians 4 verse 6 says this. Because we are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit that calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are God's child, God has also made you an heir. We are children, not slaves. That's the reason why all of that leads to so much brokenness. Everything I just said, it's slavery. It's slavery. But his blood has set us free from slavery. The slavery of earning love, the slavery of performance, the slavery of depression, the slavery of insecurity, the slavery of your past, the slavery of confusion, the slavery of meaningless living. The blood has set us free of all of that. You are a child of God and it has nothing to do with what you do. Has nothing to do with how talented you are. Has nothing to do with how much money you make. None of that. He sees son. He sees daughter. That is where your value flows from. And I think you maybe kind of pulled yourself out of that. You're like, hey, I wasn't really any of those things. But I think we fall into slavery in a lot of less obvious ways too. It can be easy to slip into slavery in every area of our life. In relationships, in sports, in ministry. I find myself all the time fighting with this. Trying to impress people. Trying to prove myself. Trying to be seen. And every single time, I am never fulfilled. It's like, oh man, I'm around this leader that I really look up to. I'm going to try to look cool and be awesome and say the right scripture and pray the right way and look all awesome. And then, you know, even if that, that leader is like, hey, that was awesome. I'm like, thanks. And that, that's it? All you feel is a little bit of a good job and that's it. It'll never, ever satisfy from heaven, when my father says, well done, that feels a lot better. It feels a lot, lot better. And so I just want to get us all on the same page, man. If there are things in your life that you are finding value, worth, and purpose in that are not flowing from this place of sonship, the Lord wants to set you free tonight. And we're going to become like children tonight. Before I talk about what it means to be a child, we need to know that we are a child. And so I'm going to keep blazing, but man, I just want you, if you're like, man, that's stretching me. I feel like I'm a slave in this area of my life. There's going to be moments to get free tonight. There's going to be moments to get rid of all that slavery off of us tonight and be, become a son in a fresh way. So now that we're all on the same page, well, I, I want to say this real quick. I, I was confused by this. I bet you guys were probably confused by this a little bit. Anyone ever confused by Paul always says sons? Like, you're like, what about the daughters? Like, he's always saying sons. Like, what does that mean? And I, I, was just, I was genuinely like, didn't know that. So I was just looking into it. And I think one thing, just so that we're all on the same page, I am talking to every woman in the room when I'm saying sons. That's who Paul was as well. But basically, he says children and daughter in other places. But in Galatians, he says it's because in the ancient world, the inheritance was passed on to the son. The son was the heir. And so Paul wanted to be sure it was understood that the spiritual inheritance was for them too. So that, that was kind of why he was doing that, to make it clear. So... Here we go. Going back to the scripture that I started with. 
Luke 18. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What does this show me? Humility is required to enter the kingdom of God. Not just humility, that America's standard of humility, but the standard of humility we're talking about here is a helpless child. This scripture, as well as other teachings of Jesus, will unpack, will show that in order to experience the kingdom fullness, it requires childlikeness. In order to experience kingdom fullness, it requires childlikeness. I, I've, been, I've been praying for our generation in the midst of everything that's happening right now. And I just, I see the body of Christ. The Lord keeps giving me this vision. It's like this huge mansion. It's this huge mansion. And I, and I keep seeing like a huge huddle in the mudroom. It's just like tons of people that are just hanging out in the mudroom when there's this huge mansion to discover. And I just felt like the Lord said, man, the only way to step into the rest of the kingdom is through childlikeness. And the body of Christ is settled for so much right here in the mudroom, not knowing that there's so much more over there. But you got to get free of all that pride if you want to see some of those stuff over there. It'll blow your mind a little bit. That'll kind of break up your religion a little bit. That'll offend you a little bit. That, that, you got to get that stuff off if we want to see those things that we're believing for. He's like, man, you don't know this, but there's like a skee-ball machine in the basement, man. If you go down there with that childlike faith, we got skee-ball, we got buck hunter, we got everything in this house. Will you come and look? Give me your childlike faith. Let's go. So those who want to experience the kingdom must become like humble little children. And in order to go where we are headed as a movement, I truly believe fighting for childlike humility must be a central conviction of our hearts. So there are three pieces of childlike humility that I just kind of want to unpack tonight. I don't even know if I'm going to get to all of them. We'll see. The Lord kind of lands on one. We might sit there for a little bit. But three things. I was just thinking about what a child is like and how, what does he mean by this humility. And I felt like the Lord gave me some revelation on all three of them. So first is dependency, teachability, and wonder. I think those are three words we could say. Yeah, that describes a child pretty well. So I want to start with dependency or desperation. Children are dependent on their parents for everything. They depend on others for, for food, for transportation, for getting dressed, for shelter, for everything. They, they can't really even make decisions by themselves. They, they got to ask their parents first. They would not survive without their parents. And this is the level of dependency the Father is calling us to live in when he says this, become like little children. We see all throughout the Gospels and through the life of Jesus, he is continually moved by desperation. There's something when, it, when it, someone comes to him with desperation that unlocks something in God's heart and he meets them in power. And the level of desperation I'm talking about in the Bible here. It's a lot different than maybe what we're thinking about. It's not a 30-second prayer before dinner. It's a lot more desperate than that. So I'm literally just going to read scriptures. I'm not even going to dissect all of them right away. I just want to stir our faith with what the Bible says about desperation. I'm going to paraphrase different scriptures, but we have one right here in Luke 5. A man who needs healing. And his bros know that he needs healing. They find out. Jesus is, is teaching in this, this room over here. He's at Byron Center Church or whatever. It's, it's packed out. And there's no room. They have their bro who needs healing. And there's no room for them to get to Jesus. But they know if he could just get to Jesus, he would be healed. And so what do they do? Instead of being like, oh, it's packed in there, man. Like, you know, maybe we'll just come back another day. 
Maybe we'll pray tomorrow. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do it later. What do they do? They say, no, let's cut a hole in the roof and lower him down. Now that is desperation. That's what desperation looks like. Another, another example, the woman with the issue of blood. This woman heard Jesus was coming. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I could touch his clothes, I would be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Something that's so cool about this story, I think, is we see that she initiated. This shows us that sometimes there are things in God that are waiting on you. She runs after him. She runs after him and it unlocked the breakthrough for her life. Some things are dependent on your yes, on your hunger, on your desperation. Sometimes it's not waiting like, oh, that must be God's not in the mood. Or maybe it's not the right season. Maybe there's not enough desperation in the childlike heart. That's what he's saying, man. Would would we be desperate like this? Blind Barnabas, Mark 10. I love this story. Then they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude, blind Barnabas, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. They're like, yo, bro, you're embarrassing us. Like, stop, bro. Stop. It's Jesus. Like, stop yelling. And what did he do? He didn't say, all right, my bad, bro. He cried out again. This is desperation. Son of David, have mercy on me. Then the blind man saying to him, be of good cheer. Rise. He is calling you. Throw aside. His, he threw aside his garment. He rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind said, Rabbi, that I may have my sight. And we know the story. He gets healed. This is the crazy part right here, y'all. It says that Jesus in verse 49 I'm going to go back to 48. It says, then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out once more, son of David, have mercy on me. In this moment, he says, son of David, have mercy on me. The next thing says this. So Jesus stood still. That's pretty crazy. That the desperation of one man made Jesus stand still. It caught his eye. Does your desperation ever catch the eye of God? Does he ever stop and be like, whoa. Or is it like... It's not even worth his time. I I don't know, man. Could we get that desperate to where Jesus' head turns at the level of desperation that we have? And so I just want to provoke us with a question. Does this culture of desperation seem foreign to us? Because we see this. I can keep going. There's so many examples of that in the Bible. But we see that God does something for desperate people that he doesn't do for everyone else. And so how could I live knowing that I need breakthrough and not walk in the most radical level of desperation I possibly could, knowing that that could unlock breakthrough in my life, that he's attracted to desperation. And desperation, is, it's unoffendable. Like all these guys, they didn't care. Like his friends were telling him to shut up. He's like, I don't care. Jesus is here. It's like there's a whole, there's a whole gathering happening and we're going to make a scene. We're going to cut a hole in the roof and lower him down. <laughs> It's going to make a scene. Everyone's going to be mad. I don't care. Jesus is here. And so often we let fear of man and we let obstacles and we let different things stop us from getting the breakthrough instead of who cares? Jesus is there. I'm going to do anything and everything, even if it offends the whole church. 
That's desperation. And so are we, are we desperate? Are we desperate for the big and obvious breakthroughs in our life? You have a friend who needs healing. What does desperation look like for that? One 30-second prayer when it's convenient for you. I don't know if that looks like cutting a hole in the roof and lowering him down in. You want to see your family saved. What does desperation look like? Not sure if just being kind at the family vacations, hoping that they'll see the light in you, is desperation. I mean, it's good. It's good, and he uses it. But it doesn't... That doesn't seem like cut a hole in the roof and lower him down in. It doesn't require much dependency to just be kind to your family. Well, maybe for some. <laughs> you want to see your coworkers set free from bondage. What does desperation look like? Invite them to Sunday nights? Sure, it's good, but how much desperation does that really take? What if? What if you prayed every night for a word of knowledge for them until you got it right? That that sounds desperate to me. That sounds like I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm, I'm lowering him into the, the roof. I'll do whatever. I'm going to touch his cloak. That's the desperation that we're talking about. We're not talking about prayer at dinner. We're talking about let me just touch his robe. And those are obvious. I just named super obvious things in our life. If you need healing, people in your life need reconciliation there's just obvious things that are pointing out but there's also very there's less obvious breakthroughs that still require desperation and that will still attract the glory and power of god if we let it so are you dependent i I was just thinking about myself i was like are you dependent on the lord for strength in meetings that are long for breakthrough in friendships for safety in car rides for new ideas at work For help with car troubles. What part of our life could we possibly say, God, I don't need you? He holds our life in the palm of his hands. He's our provider, our lover, our friend, king, alpha, and omega. And he's attracted to our desperation. He won't turn you away. He will not turn you away. There's no such thing as too desperate. Sometimes, y'all, sometimes people get mad at me. Sometimes people get mad at me at the prayer meeting. Sometimes people get mad at me at the pre-service worship. Because I just, I don't know how to not need God. I'm just like, we're, we're having a worship set and we're leading people into God's glory. What, what do you mean we're going to pray for 15 seconds? Like, that doesn't make any sense in my mind. And so I, I remember coming into churches and, I, and, and everyone's praying and I was so offensive to everybody. And they would look at me weird and they would make me feel crazy. And I'm just like... What do you mean, bro? Like, this is God. I need God. Like, it's okay. It's okay to be disruptive, man. That's what desperation looks like. Even sometimes my staff probably gets mad at me, man. We, we got like an 8 a.m. prayer meeting, and I'm yelling. <laughs> I'm yelling, God, we need you. Jesus. It's not out of hype, man. I just genuinely need God. We need him. We need him, man. This is what desperation looks like. There's never a moment. There's not a thing that we don't need God for. I love people who pray about everything. Some of us, I get offended by some of those people. But I love those type of people. Silvio and Kira, I love you guys. Come on, you ever had a friend that's just like, you just, you just need to, hey, where should we go for lunch? Let me just pray about it. What do you mean? 
Let's go to Chick-fil-A. And then they pray about it, and then they go to the place, and then someone gets saved. And you're like, whoops. This is true. These are true stories. Man, anyone have a friend like this? I'm going to pray about what I'm going to wear. I got friends like that. I'm like, what do you mean, dude? Just pick the clothes and put them on. What? I got friends. I got a friend, man. I'm dead serious. My friend does this. He's crazy. I love him so much. This is what he does. He prays every day and he says, God, what outfit do you want me to wear? And then what he does is he, he tries to make an outfit that articulates a characteristic of God. It's the craziest thing. He, he literally like, I'm telling you, he wears the craziest outfits because he says, dude, and then when they ask me, I get to tell them who God is, why I'm wearing that. The dude will wear like an art hat and a vest and like sweats. And you're like, and I was like, bro, he explained it to me that one time and it made a ton of sense. I couldn't tell you if that was the example of what he was actually trying to portray about God. But I'm telling you, this guy has seen people saved because of that. If you invite God into something, he's not going to be like, I don't want to, I don't want to be a part of that. He'll be a part of everything if you let him. That's what desperation looks like. Man, I got, I got people in my family that, that need the love of God. One specifically, I got so convicted. I was, on, I was, I was the person that was just like, oh, let me just be kind at the family gathering and maybe he'll come to know Jesus. I never weeped over him ever in my entire life. Is that I knew I, had an enc- I knew I was going to be with him the next day. For the first time in my life, I spent 30 minutes nonstop intercession for this guy. I'm telling you, it's, it's like rough. It's like really rough. This guy's, what he's going through. I love him so much. We're still praying. But I got desperate for the first time. And this guy has never really had a conversation about God. Like, we've never even had a godly conversation, honestly, because it's, it's, there's so much going on in his life. But I get desperate and I start crying out for him. Literally the night before. I'm not saying it's always going to work like this. Literally the night before. I start crying for the first time for him. I show up the next day and straight up, he brings up a conversation about God. Out of nowhere. I was like, what the heck? Something about this desperation actually works. And so I just encourage you guys, whether it's personal breakthrough in your own life for your family or just the mundane things in your life, could we be ones who are childlike and be like, what if God does want to tell me what to wear? What if God does want to tell me where to go to lunch? What if he does? Like he could if you would let him. So let's get desperate. Sound good? Let's go. Desperation. Um, I'm going to give a couple of practicals here about what does independence look like versus dependency. I would say independency looks like this. A prayerless life. We say this all the time. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. Prayerlessness is saying, I can do this by myself. I don't need you, God. Independency looks like lots of excuses. Independency looks like doesn't want to invite other people into their decisions. Looks like no accountability. Never asks for words of knowledge or different things that would make them step out a little bit more faith. Thinks fasting is for other people. Dependency looks like fasting. Looks like vibrant prayer life. Looks like consistently seeking the supernatural power of God. Knowing that their flesh has nothing to offer. Dependency looks like I'm ready to look like a fool if if it means I get him. If it means I get him. Come on. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to go through all these and I'm going to kind of give, yeah, scripture points like that and try to end with some practicals of what it looks like to actually walk in this. Number two, um, see my time here if I should skip number two. I think I can do it. Okay. Number two, 
Um, first of all, before I keep going, did anyone see a Freedom 2 Salvation Encounter manual around them at all? Because I was going to preach from it at, the, at this point. But I can still, I think I got some pictures of it on my phone. But if not, no worries. I don't know where it is. I brought it in here and it's gone. So I don't know what happened. Devil, get out! Uh, <laughs> the Lord is teaching me about desperation right now. Here we go. I need the Lord for this. Um, okay, number two. Teachability. Teachability. I think that the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, is the same for our spirituality. If we stay like an old dog, instead of, oh, dude. Bro. Shout out to Silvio. Let's go. Okay. Here we go. So, what I said. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. I feel like it's the same way for our spirituality. If you stay like an old dog instead of like a child, we will stay stagnant and not grow in our faith for years. And this is what we see all over the church. It stems from losing our teachability. Kids are so teachable, man. Kids are so teachable. They go from being a baby to like walking, talking, having conversations with you, even riding a bike like within like years. Like two, three, four years. It's crazy. I don't know if babies can ride a bike at four. Can four-year-olds ride a bike? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I did. <laughs> Either way, they learn the alphabet in a matter of like, like very fast. I'm like, bro, they're learning. They're so teachable. I learned how to water ski when I was five. Uh-huh. Crazy. Kids are so teachable. Within months, they know addition and subtraction. They learn all these different things at a rapid rate. They are teachable. And this is an aspect of humility we must carry if we want to see the fullness of the kingdom. And so what I want to do is this is probably going to be a repeat for a lot of the guys that were with me two weeks ago. We did a whole men's moment on destructing defensiveness. But that's what I'm going to talk about right now. I want to destruct one of the biggest hindrances of teachability and it's defensiveness. We're so defensive. I am so defensive. I'll say it first. My wife knows this. Sorry, I'm getting better at it, babe. Um, but defensiveness robs us of growth. Defensive, defensiveness keeps us in this box of comfort. And we don't want to be there. Because the truth is we all have blind spots. Every single one of us, man. Imagine like having something in your teeth for years and nobody telling you. That, that's like, we have all of these, man. And with defensiveness there, that thing's going to be in your teeth forever. It's going to be sitting there. No, and you will never, ever get that thing out of your teeth. Because you're not teachable. You're not willing to, to be changed and, and to let go of control. And so I want to read some examples. Um, I'm going to read some examples from this book. And, and before I step into defensiveness, I just want to say, if I read some stuff, and you get offended and say, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. You are literally doing the exact thing we're talking about. Like, <laughs> so, so don't be that guy. I got stuff in it. Guys, I've preached this twice in the last two weeks. And every time I'm like, shoot, man. There's so much more for me. But I want to give an example of a teachable heart first. Um, example or example of a, of a teachable heart to me is, is, is David all, all throughout his life. But there's a specific um, instance in David's life that really sticks out to me. I want to give context to where we're at in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, David has just messed up, man. 
He was king. He messed up with Bathsheba. Consequences, there's trial to his family. His son, Amon, sleeps with his Amon's sister, Tamar, who is his other child. Tamar's brother, Absalom, is mad, kills Amon. And David is fleeing because Absalom is taking over him. Like his kingdom is getting taken over right now by his own son. So this dude's in kind of a pickle right now. It's not like the best time for you to hear somebody come and give you a moment of critique or a moment of helpful encouragement. This This is not prime time. If there was ever a moment... For David to have the right to be a little bit defensive, it might be right now. But we see David respond in the complete opposite manner. 2 Samuel 16. Oh, yeah. Bible names. Here we go. Uh, 2 Samuel 16, verse 9. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let Let me go cut off his head. The king said, what does this have to do with you? And so what's happening right now is this is David's homie, okay? And, and there's a dude who comes up and just starts cursing David in the midst of this. You murderer, you whatever, you fill in the blank. And I, I'm just putting myself in this situation because I've had people critique me. I've had people say a lot of stuff about me. And I'm just like, if I'm there and I got my boy, I got Jonah next to me. And I'm walking, and this dude just comes up to me and says, You false prophet, you heretic, you da-da-da-da-da-da, you da-da-da-da. And I don't even know the guy. And in the midst of this, I just have the worst family drama going on in my life right now. I don't know if my first response to Jonah's like, dude, let me go take his head off. I, I don't know if I'm gonna be like, no, 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 don't do it. I'm gonna, yeah, go take his head off, man. Get that guy. <laughs> that, that, that might not be my first response. I would be like, you don't know me, bro. What do you mean? I, I, I'm so defensive to where that would be like my initial response. But we see David completely walk in the opposite spirit. I'm going to skip down to verse 12. It says, it may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. He basically says this. He's like, dude, that's not a curse. What if God's in that? What if there's something in there that that guy's saying to me? Even if there's a little bit of God, I want to listen. Even if, even if one tiny bit of what he says, even if it's in anger, even if he doesn't have the right to say it, even if he's not in my life, even if he doesn't know me, what if there's a little bit of God in that? I want it if it is. That's a teachable heart. That is a teachable heart. He was willing to listen to this guy curse him just at the chance that a little bit of it was God. This is the level of humility and teachability we must carry if we want to walk in the fullness of the kingdom. Some of you might be saying, that's too extreme. Like if some random dude did that to me, there's no way. That doesn't make, I don't, I don't really feel that. And if I were to live out this wild culture of teachability that you're talking about, aren't I opening myself up to deception? Maybe, the, maybe those are thoughts that are going through your head. Like what if some random dude just says something that's completely whack? And I'm going to say No. You're not actually opening up yourself to deception. The devil wants you to think that teachability means vulnerability to deception. And in reality, that itself is a deception. Why? Because the Bible says in John 16, verse 13, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
And so that means no matter what anybody says about me, I have the Holy Spirit inside of me that will help me, God, to see what part of it is true or not. So I should be honestly learning from absolutely everyone I can and try to say, Spirit of truth, give me what's true of that, give me the truth of that, give me the truth of that, give me the truth of that. That is kingdom teachability. That is radical teachability. That's David-type teachability. And we can walk in that because the Spirit of truth lives inside of us and will help us do that. He will help us live in this. So this is the posture we must choose, living in a way where other people can speak into our lives. This is to our benefit, I promise. This is to our benefit, to live in a way where people can speak in your life. I had one of the wildest rebuke sessions about two years ago by a good friend of mine. I'm so thankful he did it. Sat down with coffee with him, just unleashes on me. (laughs) My first thought, everything I just said. You don't know me, man. You don't know that situation. You don't actually know what you're talking about, dude. What do you mean? That's, I didn't say that to him, but internally that's what was going on in my head. I was putting on the false humility. Like, yeah, that's good, man. You don't know what you're talking about, bro. Like, <laughs> I'm just getting rebuked. And God is, I, 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 my first response is defensive, but I'm not kidding you. And he said this to me, and it was so good. He basically said, um, Brian, the acceleration of your life is directly correlated to the, the level that you allow people to speak into it. I was like, man, that's good. And that's true because I'm telling you, I grew more in that one conversation than I had in an entire year. He got the, he got the, the thing out of my teeth. That's that blind spot that I had in my life, the way that I was leading, that I had no idea that I was leading like that. I had no idea that's how I was making people feel. I had no idea that that's what, that was happening. He told me, and because of that, everything has shifted. I'm still growing and learning in a lot of things that he said I'm not perfect. But I'm aware and I'm growing in that where I could have spent 10 years of my life living in that, that, the problems that I was living in. And so for us to say, or it, I'll say it's impossible to be truly teachable toward the Lord and not towards his people. The Lord designed us to be sharpened by one another, to be challenged by each other. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. We are supposed to do this in community. We need to learn to yearn for his voice in whatever form he chooses. Even if it's some random dude coming after you, calling you a murderer like David. I want to yearn to hear the voice of God that even if it's there, I want it. I want to be so teachable because we will never experience Growth or the full fruit of a surrendered life in isolation. So this is what I want to do. I'm not going to go through this whole thing. It'll take me too long if I were to do that. But I want to give this example that Brian Brent gave. So, so good. He basically says this. So we know the octopus basically doesn't have very much real aggressive defensive tactics. Can't really bite anyone. Doesn't have any venom or anything like that. And so how does an octopus run away from its predators? It shoots the ink right back at him, and it gives like this big cloud that looks like an octopus, and then he dips. He runs away. And that is exactly what we do all the time with our defensive excuses and our defensive heart as we shoot out this defensive thing and we run away from it. And so he has all these examples of ways that we shoot out ink in our life. And I'm telling you, they're very, very convicting. And so I just, I'm just going to rapid fire a couple of them. And I just want you to evaluate yourself like, man, do I like have any of these in my life defensive strongholds that are keeping me from having a teachable heart like David? 
So first one, first example of ink is this, schedule demands. This person is simply too busy for anyone to see what's really going on with you. Number two, disabling circumstances. Things are so hard for you that it seems as though the only appropriate response for others is to pity and help you not speak into your life. Leadership slash responsibility. There is so much on your plate or your position is so important that others are intimidated. You portray the hero image and no one would think that they have a place to speak into your life. Troubled past. You portray to people how far you've already come and convince them that they should be satisfied with the growth that you've achieved. <laughs> Got me. Uh, prove it to me. I love this one. Prove it to me. People who speak into your life are on the defensive, needing to present an airtight legal case that proves conclusively that they see something in your life. You want examples, dates, and quotes. Five, confusion. I'm really trying to understand what you're saying, but I just don't see it. In actuality, you don't believe that you could be blind to something in your life that's visible to somebody else. A couple more. Two-way street. You cannot take ownership of your sin without pointing out something about the person speaking into your life. Religiosity. You claim to have already had revelation on what they're speaking to and point out how you've already dealt with it. Presenting your credentials. You are completely comfortable talking through what the speaker may bring to you, but there's no result of change. You take a humble posture with your speech, but there's no conviction or repentance. Defeat. You take a specific word of correction and interpret it as judgment or deficiency superimposed over your entire life. Communicating to the speaker that they have crushed you. And as you realize how useless you are in your current or realize how useless you are in your current state, the speaker finds himself struggling with guilt, and then they try to encourage you. Two more. Shame and condemnation. You strive so hard to do everything right that it's crushing you to hear any word of correction. The person speaking in your life fears that you will beat yourself up if they bring something to your attention. Last one, pride and superiority. You respond with such a confidence that the speaker feels that they are stupid and somehow cannot express themselves well enough. Dang. I don't know about you, but I got defensiveness in my life that's keeping me from being teachable to the Lord. One of the things about defensiveness is that sometimes it makes other people pay the cost for speaking into your lives. And we want to be ones who are just completely free of that. So I just want to read, there's kind of two responses of ink. We call them passive ink and then aggressive ink. And this is kind of the ways that we respond by making other people pay a cost. So passive ink, what you do, making someone else pay a cost, silence, victimization, emotional manipulation, communicates that they've been deeply wounded rather than edified. Body language. Isolation, withholding, passive-aggressive response, shut down emotionally and relationally. It's the passive response, and there's aggressive response. Defensive posture, blame, retribution, comeback, competition, cutting people off before they finish, body language, crossed arms, scowls, denial, anger, intimidation, disqualifying the speaker from speaking into your life by pointing out his or her own sin. So, I don't know about you, but I want to be one who's learning as much as I can on this side of eternity. I want to be one who's living my life to my full potential in Christ. And I know that that can't come by me just staying in my box, in my lane, and doing whatever I feel like is right. Because I have a flesh, and my flesh 
always is craving sin. And so I need the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God speaks through other people, and I need those voices in my life to be walking in the fullness of what Jesus has for me. In Matthew 7, we, we have this awesome scripture about the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the one who builds his house on the rock. But then the Bible basically says this, that you are a fool if you hear these words of mine and build them on the sand and don't do anything with them. And so the Bible defines fool a, di- a little bit different than the way we define a fool. The, bu- the Bible defines a fool as one who is ignorant to correction or ignores correction and continues in his own way. It's religion that says needing correction is foolish. So what does teachability look like? I'll start with the unteachable heart. Only listens to teachings or voices that agree with their point of view. Usually critical and skeptical. Runs away from uncomfortability. When feeling uncomfortable at gatherings, they usually judge what's happening in other people. Instead of leaning into what they can learn from it. Most conversations revolve around you. They rarely ask questions about the other person. There's no accountability in their life. You rarely ask questions that evaluate the ways that you can be better. The teachable heart looks like this. Active examination of my own heart. Immediate activation of revelation. Always wanting to learn from those around them. I, I want to be one who learns from an 18-year-old, like thinking about in the same heart, heart posture as an 18-year-old as I am from Francis Chan. Like, I want to be one who's like leaning in like, oh, I could get something from this. Yes, I understand Francis has so much wisdom. And there's so much we can glean from him. But I'm telling you, for us to be naive and, and think that there's not something that God could use an 18-year-old for, this guy in David's life, he used him to speak into his life as a tool, and he was not some Francis Chan guy. And so God could speak through anyone into our lives. What does it look like to be teachable? We study the Word, not just read the Word. We don't just go through motions. We study it. We want to understand it. What does it mean to be teachable? We listen to other perspectives. We listen to John MacArthur and Benny Hinn. (laughs) I went there. So opposite. So opposite in theology. I'm dead serious. I don't even know where I stand, but I listen to both of those guys. I'll just, I'll say it publicly. I listened to John MacArthur's sermon before I, before I preached this on childlikeness. It was so good. So good. We want to be ones who gleam and learn as much as we can on this side of earth. Last one is wonder. Kids are full of wonder. They are so easily entertained. I'm learning this because I, I, just, I just got a niece. She's amazing. Eden. She is almost one. And it's like honestly like one of my first times being around a baby a lot. <laughs> and I'm learning. <laughs> and this baby Eden, she will literally just like... Give her some keys. And she's just like, oh, keys. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, what? Keys? Yo, true story. The other day, Eden comes over. She played with a lemon for an hour and a half. <laughs> she literally sat on her couch with a lemon and played with it. Was so entertained for an hour and a half. They are in constant awe, it feels like. And this is something we can so easily lose in our faith. I'm just going to make a fun example here. But we can so easily get numb to how cool lemon is. Like, how the heck does this yellow ball thing come out of a tree? And then we put it in salsa and we put it in juice and make bougie water out of it. Like, this is like, this is crazy. Like, there's a level. And I, get, I hope you get where I'm going here. It's like, man, what about the cross? Like, how can we? 
how this, this is the same right like how numb we get to, to lemons and how numb we get to pizza or I don't know whatever, but I love pizza, so that's my example. But man, how numb we get to these things. How numb do we get to the cross? How numb do we get to the worth of Jesus? How numb do we get? How often do we come to gatherings just casually, not understanding the revelation that the blood tore the veil that we can enter to the holies of holies? This is crazy. We see that so many have lost their wonder in the church. Oh, man. And I want to wage war on these tendencies in our community and in our generation. That's why I wrote Never Lose My Fire. I'm sick of seeing wonder go down and down and down as people get older and older and older. It doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like the older you get, the more you know God, the more wonder there should be. And so I wrote this song just like, man, I'm kind of sick of like old people coming up to me and seeing the way I'm living and being like, Oh, man, I remember back when I was your age, I used to do that. I'm like, what do you mean? You used to be passionate in worship when you were my age? Like, what, what changed? The, the worth of God is the same. You probably have a greater revelation than me right now. Like, oh, I remember back when I was your age, man, I used to preach the gospel through the streets. What changed? Don't, don't you go to Walmart? Like, you get groceries? Like, what? I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. We should never lose our wonder. He's limitless in glory. He's limitless in power. The rest of my life I will spend getting to know God in a greater way. Like a little child getting entertained by a lemon. Could I have that level of awe for his presence every time? And this is what I believe is going to lead us into the fullness of the kingdom is wonder. The Bible says actually that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like so... For people to look down on me, like, oh, like, once you're wise one day, like me, it's actually the opposite. It's like those who fear, that's the beginning of wisdom is reverence, awe, fearing the Lord. The core verse I'm going to be pulling from right now is Psalm 25. I love this verse. It says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. If you lack wonder, you will lack friendship. There are things in the kingdom that are only accessible through childlike wonder. Yeah. And I want to say this. A lack of fascination ultimately stems from a contentment with the shallow. Does that make sense? A lack of fascination, a lack of wonder. Ultimately, where's the root of this? It's a contentment with shallow. Its best friend is bare minimum. Very surface level. I'm, in, I'm content with going with services, leaving the same. I pick and choose when events, I pick and choose when events when he's worthy of me really pressing in. I sometimes need three songs to hype me up before I can actually engage and respond in the worth of Jesus. If that's the case, your wonder meter is probably pretty low. If the only time you thank God intentionally is before dinner, wonder meter is probably a little bit low. If long prayers irritate you, wonder meter, probably pretty low. If the only time you worship him is on Sunday mornings, Wonder meter, pretty low. If the cross doesn't melt your heart. Come on, if the cross doesn't melt your heart, shallow revelation of Calvary love. If sovereignty, the sovereignty of God doesn't blow your mind. Shallow revelation of his character. 
shallow revelation of his power, if his worth doesn't bring you to his knees or to your knees, shallow revelation, settling. Maybe we've settled for shallow. Wonder is the longing for deep, for the fullness. Think about this. What would you, what would you do if you saw your friend receive a really awesome gift? Your friend gets a, I don't know, a super nice handwritten card, their favorite candy, and someone paid off their student debt. Student debt just got like really big gift right there. <laughs> Went from candy to student debt. <laughs> How weird would it be if you saw your friend like this was random and they just came up and did it? They didn't jump. They weren't excited. They didn't hug them. They were just like, "Yeah, cool, thanks." Pay my student debt. That would be weird. You would be like, there's a disconnect in your heart. There's something wrong with your heart right now. As your, as your friend, you would say that. You would question the state of that person's heart. And we should do the same thing if this is how we are acting towards God. Something isn't connecting. That doesn't make any sense. The love of God is so much more extravagant than paying for student debt. And yet we respond with, like, oh, yeah, just casually. No, there's so much wonder to be found in this, man. There's so much wonder. A lot of times see people, people see people full of wonder. They think there's something wrong with them. Why are they dancing like that? Why are they worshiping like that? Why are they preaching like that? Why are they going through the, the streets preaching like this? That's a surface level heart right there. That's like, man, you're missing it. They see something that you don't see. It's not their problem. It's, it's probably your problem. And I know the things I just said, they're, they're very surface level. Or for us, at least. I mean, not surface level, but like we do that stuff. So that's pretty normal here. But I want to get a little bit wilder. What would you do? And I have friends who've done this. So I'm just, I'm just saying it. If, if your friend started like, I'm going to walk on water. And then they try. I have a friend who did this. Walking on water. Fall. Gets up. Walking on water again. You're like, what? Does it again. Again and again and again. You might say crazy. I say childlike wonder. I'm serious. I watched another guy. There was a, someone needed a limb to grow out. We're on like a huge platform right now. Tons of people there. I'm actually leading the gathering. So I'm. A little nervous about what's happening right now. <laughs> he publicly goes after this and prays for this limb to go out. Everyone thought he was crazy. Everyone thought he was so crazy. What is he doing? That's crazy. Even Christians like us. You probably even heard me say that. That's a little crazy. You say crazy. I said childlike wonder. I'm serious, man. This is what it means. This is where we will experience the fullness of the kingdom. If you don't believe that that could ever happen, you'll never see it happen. That's, that's the truth. You never will. Even if I lived my whole life believing that that could happen and never and it never happens, living in the culture of wonder would be worth it. Any ounce of fear of God, or wait, I'm going back to Psalm 25 right here. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. So any ounce of fear of the Lord I've lost, I've lost an ounce of friendship. I just want to end really soon here with this is 
I was looking at the life of David. I thought this was so interesting. You know how he messed up with Bathsheba and everything and how this... He's known as a man after God's own heart. And David's amazing. Such a cool example for us to look up to. But in the moment where he failed, he wrote a song. Psalm 51. We read Psalm 51 and we see what was David expressing in the moment that he fell short? What was he expressing? Lord, restore in me the joy of your salvation. David knew he lost his wonder. That's what led him to falling into compromise, to falling into sin, was he lost his childlike wonder. He lost, oh my gosh, the joy of my salvation. I forgot it. He forgot and it led him down this path of compromise. It's eventually what's going to happen. We lose our wonder. Keep losing your wonder. You lose fear of the Lord. You lose, friends, you lose friendship with God. You go down the ways of the world. Destruction. It'll continue to happen. That's why I'm just telling you what I've seen. So many people in the generation older than me who they burned like me. And I've seen that they haven't grown in their faith in 15 years. Just the same. If not going down, people deconstructing their faith, people running away from God. It's we lost the joy of our salvation. We lost the wonder. We lost the childlikeness. We lost the wide-eyed and mystified. We lost the he's worthy. I'm blown away. We lost this. And that can't be the case here. I can't, I, I, we can't talk about the kingdom. We can't talk about the kingdom if we're not willing to, to accept the responsibility and the heart that it takes to actually walk in the kingdom. Because the, the, it's going to hurt our brains a little bit. Wonder, it allows for God to do things that go beyond our understanding. The band, you guys can come back up. Wonder leads us to the things outside of our flesh and into the things of the spirit. If, if I had to worship a God that I could fully understand in my flesh, he wouldn't be God to me. That, to me, that's not a God worth following. A God worth following is one who has me on my knees blown away by who this man is. And I think there are practical ways that the Lord wants us to restore our wonder. I just want to read a couple of these things, ending with what I was talking about, how we're getting practical a little bit. Signs of lack of wonder. You haven't read your Bible or reading your Bible isn't joyful for you. You are content with seeing God move the way that is most comfortable to you. Even if you believe it's biblically true, that just isn't for me. Affection for the Lord sometimes seems too extreme. You say, ah, it's just too extreme. I said this one before, but you constantly think prayer is going too long. <laughs> you haven't had a new revelation from the Spirit in years from God. What does wonder look like? Deep reverence. Regularly seeking the supernatural power of God. This is a big one. Consistently saying thank you. Genuine affection for the Lord. I'm serious. If you're, if, if thank you isn't a normal pattern in your life or it's literally only before dinner for 30 seconds, there's not that much wonder in your life. What, practice. I dare you to practice giving God thanks for everything. You will begin to start being full of wonder like a child. God, thank you for getting me home safe. 
God, thank you for this cheeseburger. God, thank you for my salvation. God, thank you for um, what you've done for me, for healing me, for restoring me. God, thank you for my family. God, thank you for a good night of sleep. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. You will begin to develop a childlike wonder inside of you that God can trust with things that go beyond our heads. And so what I want to do is I, I just want to create space for the kingdom to come. We can just get everybody to stand up for a second. I want to create space for the kingdom to come. I believe our hearts, like I said, I didn't have a super theological conversation for us today. My hope was inspiration and reformation in our hearts. Any area that you're like, man, I'm really not carrying that culture of desperation. I'm really not carrying that culture of teachability. I'm really not carrying that culture. I forgot my last point of wonder. I want us to repent and get it off of us so that we can have a childlike heart that the Bible says experiences the kingdom of God. And so what I want to do right now, I'm just going to lead a moment of corporate repentance.